This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. One of our great missionaries there in uh, West Africa. And so, so thankful to be a part of what God is doing around the world through uh, your IMB workers uh, that are seeking to reach every tribe and tongue uh, with the with the gospel. And so our Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering is coming up. Our end gathering is going to be on December uh, the 5th. Looking forward to that. Let's be praying towards that day. Well, let's turn to Esther today. We are concluding our series in Esther. It's great to, to get up to Lancaster this week to see Esther uh, with Melissa. That was kind of spur of the moment, but uh, so many of you came back and told us about it. We wanted to go. God opened the door for us to do that. So it was uh, terrific and um, looking forward to this morning. It has been great to walk through this amazing book um, and most of all, just to see how everything points to Jesus, that God was delivering his people then because through those people, he was going to bring the deliverer. It all points to Jesus. It's all about him. And so today, we're going to look at some selected passages from these last few chapters in Esther. And this message is called A Night in Persia, a night in Bethlehem. Let's look first of all at chapter 8, and let's look at the first eight verses. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, If it pleases the king, and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents of the scheming Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. Let's get down to verse 15 of chapter 8. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white, with a great gold crown and purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor in every province and in every city where the king's command and edict reached. Gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Let's continue in chapter 9. The king's 
command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Dar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. And then let's skip down to verse 20 of chapter 9. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews and all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and sending gifts to one another and to the poor. Father, we thank you for your great deliverance that we have seen in this book. And we know that your deliverance of your people then was because you were going to send the ultimate deliverer through those people, the Lord Jesus, our deliverer, our rescuer, our Savior. And so we pray that you'd show us today how that night in Persia, when you turned everything around, when things looked like they were heading towards death and you brought about life, that you'd show us how that night in Persia points to that night in Bethlehem when the ultimate deliverer was born. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Yogi Berra was one of the greatest baseball catchers uh, who ever played the game. And, uh, but Yogi has become known in our culture maybe more for his witty sayings, his yogiisms, than for his Hall of Fame baseball career. And uh, Yogi's, Yogi's sayings were, they were, they were kind of humorous, um, they, they were witty, but yet they, they captured some truth about life in kind of a different sort of way. And, and one of those most famous expressions, and, and you've probably heard it, whether you know Yogi, it originated with Yogi Bear or not, but it's the saying, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> it ain't over till it's over. That definitely applies to Esther as we head into chapter 8. Because at the end of chapter 7, after Haman is, is hanged, I mean, it seems like it's, it's, it's perfect poetic justice, and it's like the book could just end right there. But it's not the end. It ain't over. <laughs> because this, this evil decree of genocide against the Jewish people has already been sent out. It's been sent out under the king's name to all of the cities and all the provinces of Persia. And so the lives of the Jewish 
people are still very much under threat as chapter 8 opens. God's intervention, his supernatural intervention, his supernatural deliverance is still required as we enter into chapter 8. So we see here how the book ends, but more than that today, we're going to just pull some threads together of the themes that we see, that we've seen in Esther throughout the whole book over these weeks as we've walked through it. The first principle that we see is this. God turns evil upside down. Praise God. He turns evil upside down. So what we saw last week in chapter 7 is that Haman is hung on the, the very gallows that he had constructed on which he was going to hang Mordecai. So it's like this reversal. I mean, things are just going one way, and just God just like totally reverses it, turns it upside down. Now in chapters 8 through 10, we see more reversals that God has brought about. The Jewish people are not destroyed. Instead, those who sought to destroy them are destroyed. Mordecai goes from wearing the sackcloth of mourning to wearing robes of royalty. And so it is for us as followers of Jesus. The one who, who seeks to destroy us has been defeated and will one day be completely destroyed. You know, 1 Peter 5.8 says that, that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour he wants to destroy us, but he has already been defeated at the cross and the resurrection. And one day he will be utterly destroyed when, when Christ re returns. We, as followers of Christ, have been brought into the royal family. That's what we see here, right? Esther is brought into this royal family, and in a way here, even Mordecai, right, goes from uh, being a total outsider to being inside the palace. And we have been brought from being far from God, from being on the outside, to being brought into his family as sons and daughters of the king. And so when the enemy tries to beat you up, you need to be, remind them of, of who you are. Remind yourself of who you are. We need to constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we have been brought into the royal family. We are sons and daughters of the king, and there is a nobility in that. There is a dignity in that. There is an authority in that. We now are wearing royal robes of Christ's righteousness. We see that Mordecai goes from wearing sackcloth to wearing these, these robes of royalty. But we now, as followers of Christ, have been brought from, from, from wearing the, the filthy rags of sin to wearing the robes of Christ's perfect righteousness. When you trust in, in Jesus, when you are united to him by faith, Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to your account. 
We are now clothed in, in his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before the throne of God. And when God sees you, he sees his son. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son because you are united to Christ, clothed in royal robes of Christ's righteousness. And so in the gospel, the curse is reversed. That's what we see in Esther, right? It's the reverse of a curse. In the gospel, the curse is reversed. I mean, think about the night that, that everything went down in Persia. That, that night when everything looked like it was headed towards death, and God just reverses everything, and he brings life. That night that, that Haman's workmen were out there just you know, building the 75-foot uh, gallows on which to hang Mordecai. They're out there you know, hammering, pounding nails all night long, constructing this massive instrument of death. But what's God doing? At the same time, God's bringing life. God's keeping the king awake and, and, and he puts it in his mind to ask for these, these historical records to come and be read to him. And, and they come and they bring these records and they turn to the exact page where it's recorded that, that Mordecai had saved his life. God, God just reverses everything. God takes evil and he just, he just turns, it, turns it upside down. You think about the Lord Jesus hanging on another instrument of death. And, and, and on the outside, it, it's, 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 it's everything horrible. It's, it's, it's everything just, just the worst that you could possibly imagine. The Son of God murdered, nailed there to the cross. But at that same time that that was happening, God was bringing life. God was bringing life to us. Jesus was atoning for our sins on that cross. And that cross was laying the pathway for the resurrection that was going to come three days later. C.S. Lewis beautifully pictures this in the Chronicles of Narnia when the Christ figure, Aslan, dies on the stone table. He's put to death by the witch on this stone table. And it seems like you know, evil has won. But then Aslan rises from the dead and he explains to the children what was actually happening on that stone table when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead. The table would crack and death itself would start working backward. God reverses the curse. He turns evil upside down. The second thing that we see in Esther is this. God turns mourning into joy. God turns mourning into joy. So earlier in the book, we, we saw that after this, 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 this decree of annihilation against the Jewish people is, is let loose and the king has signed it. I mean, we see the, the, the mourning on the part of of Mordecai and the Jewish people. We see in chapter, saw in chapter 4 and verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. We saw the Jewish people doing this in chapter 4 and verse 3. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented 
and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. But what do we see in our text today? Just sheer, undiluted, unspeakable joy. Chapter 8 and verses 16 and 17. The Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor in every province and every city where the king's command and edict reached. Gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had overcome them. Chapter 9 and verse what do we see there? During those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and sending gifts to one another and to the poor. God turns mourning into joy. And listen, God will turn our mourning into joy. There's a lot of mourning in this life. Let's face it. I mean, this life has its share of joys, yes, but there's a lot of pain and heartache that we go through in this world. Many trials and tribulations. And we should not minimize that. It's, it's real. It's real. It's part of the fallenness of this world. But God will turn our mourning into joy. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. John gives us a glimpse of this glory and, and what it will be like in Revelation 21, where he says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We get a, a picture of that day, even in the, the name <laughs> of the one, of the person toward the center of the story, um, Esther. Her Hebrew name uh, was Hadassah, you may remember. So Hadassah in Hebrew means myrtle. It comes from the, the myrtle tree, which was very, very important in prophetic symbolism. And we saw it when we went through Isaiah. We saw it in Isaiah 55 in verses 12 and 13. God says there, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. Hadassah. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. And you think about this. But the one who had a crown of thorns pressed down upon his head is going to bring about a new creation with no more thorns. No more thorns. No more briars. The cypress and the myrtle. God, God's going to make all things new. And listen, if you could take 
all of the pain of this, of this life, all the, all the grief, all the trials and, and tribulations of, of, of this life, if you could take all of it and you could put it all on a scale, it would be nothing, nothing compared to the weight of glory on the other side that will be ours in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, for our light, our momentary light affliction is producing us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I love the way that Tolkien pictures this in Lord of the Rings in the conversation that Sam Ganji has with, with his friend Frodo. Sam, Sam says this, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Praise God. Praise God. He turns mourning into joy. The third thing that we see here is that God delivers his people. God delivers his people. The name that you never see throughout the whole book of Esther is the name of God. It's never mentioned. Yet, yet God is center stage in Esther. God is the key to everything in the book of Esther. In Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of Silver Blaze, the solving of the crime revolves around the night when the dog did not bark. The dog that did not bark is the, was the key to everything and, and, and understanding what was actually happening. The name of God is the name that you don't hear in the book of Esther. But that name that you don't hear is the key to everything in Esther. Everything. By, by not mentioning the name of God, this writer is brilliantly highlighting the fact that it is God, only God, could have brought this story together. As I was working on this message this week, I, I happened to look out the, the window and I could see the trees swaying. And I could deduce, hey, it's, it's windy out there. Was I seeing the wind? We don't see the wind. We see the effects of the wind. And you see all kinds of effects of the wind of God in this book, right? They're all over the place. Esther just happens to be Jewish and just happens to be beautiful. She just happens to be chosen to be the queen of Persia just before this decree of annihilation is going to be issued against the Jewish people so that she would be put in a position to help for such a time as this. Mordecai just happens to be at the exact place at the exact moment to overhear these two would-be assassins plotting against the king. A sleepless king just happens to request 
that these historical records be brought to him in the middle of the night, and they just happen to turn to the exact page where it's revealed that Mordecai had saved his life. We could go on and on. The point is that God is actively and sovereignly and providentially at work in this world and in your life. Even the smallest details of our lives, God is sovereign. God is in control. God loves his people. Matthew Henry says this about Esther. Though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. Mark Dever says of Esther, this book is one of the longest sustained meditations on the sovereignty and providence of God in the whole Bible. It is really just one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. God delivers his people. Fourth, the story points to the Savior. We need to understand how the amazing story of Esther fits into the storyline of Scripture. God is protecting and preserving his people in the book of Esther. But why? Because he is faithful to his promises. Let's let's go back to what's been a touchstone scripture for us throughout this series. In Genesis 12, in verses 2 and 3, where God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through the Jewish people. All the peoples on earth will be blessed. How? Because Jesus comes from that people. And so God is protecting and preserving his people in Esther because from that people will come the savior of all peoples. That night in Persia when it all went down was pointing to a night in Bethlehem. The name that Esther was given in in Persia, Esther, means star. God uses Esther the star as his instrument of deliverance for his people so that one night over Bethlehem, a star would rise and point the way to the one who brings deliverance to all peoples. Matthew 2 in verses 1 and 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And in the last chapter of the Bible, the Lord Jesus issues this invitation. He says this in Matthew 22, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. And let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life 
freely. Let's pray. Jesus invites you to take that water of life freely. He invites you to come. For some of you, that that means turning to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You may be here in this room. You may be watching a video today or at some point in the future. Jesus invites you to come and to take the living water that brings eternal life. He is the bright and morning star that Esther the star pointed to. He, 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 makes, he makes new tomorrows, new mornings, new beginnings. Turn to Jesus and let his, the light of life shine into you and illuminate your life and your way. And Jesus invites you to come. So Father, we thank you for this amazing book of Scripture that so clearly points to your Son. We pray that the light of his love would, would shine in lives today for people that need to come to know Christ. And, and may his light shine through those of us who, who know Christ to point the way to the Savior, to point the way to the only one who can deliver. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 